The power of artificial intelligence spreads through many different business sectors. Among them is drug discovery. Machine learning is used not only to discover new drugs, but also to improve ones we already have in circulation. How is this happening? Who are some of the main players in this emerging field? What are the necessary elements needed to foster these new technologies and commercialize them? On this episode of Market Hunt, the worlds of pharma and artificial intelligence collide. Stay tuned. Entrepreneurship's hard. You need to have support there. We fundamentally have to learn how to live our lives differently. We can't keep going the way we have. It's not like Google can kind of move in and then take the entire market. Not yet, right? It's a real balancing act, which requires a bit of insanity, frankly. But I mean, some people are into that stuff, I guess. You know, the size of the market, that's really all you've got. We're coming up with some pretty interesting ideas. We've solved it. <laughs> solved everything. <laughs> We've solved it all. And now a message from our sponsor, IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. Watch video case studies, listen to podcasts, and much more. If you are an education professional looking for course content, an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub focuses on innovation ecosystems and firms who commercialize their technologies in international markets. Let's listen in to a video case study featuring Photon, etc. You look at an object uh, with a camera. Normally, you only see the image. When you have the spectral image, you have this capability to look at the chemical composition of any object in front of you, and you start dreaming about what you can do with that. It's huge. That's Sebastian Blais-Wellet of Photon Etc. Photon Etc. manufactures analytical equipment. These include special cameras, filters, and microscope platforms. Sebastian founded his company after a discovery he made while at the California Institute of Technology. He needed to enter into a license deal with the institution where he developed the technology. I, you know, I had to license my invention from my institution. It took about two weeks. <laughs> and, and I get, you know, they say, oh, you want to start a business? Here's the license deal. Look at that and say, okay. <laughs> it was very, very fair, very, very positive, very easy. And they just say, we're proud that you're starting a company, so go. Sebastian came back to Montreal from California to found his company in his hometown. He was able to take advantage of research and development credits offered in Canada. I had no money, of course, no place and only an office at home, a small office, but it was also the laundry room. And when I did my first tax, uh, I had a tax audit from the government, and they came and audited myself, and so I kind of hide the, <laughs> the appliance behind a curtain, and with, you know, I had these science posters and my computer, and, but in, and they came, saw that, said, okay, you're starting, it's all right. And in, in the middle of the audit, you know, the, the la the uh, the washer starts spinning. <laughs> and I was like, an experiment. It's an experiment. But that's how that's how Photon started uh, in a laundry room. Uh, you know, some are garage uh, company. Mine is a laundry room company. How was Sebastian able to take his innovation and grow it into a company? Find out more at the end of the show. You can also check out the Photon Etc. case study by visiting ie-knowledgehub.ca.
Finding markets for new technologies is a challenging endeavor. You are facing an entrenched culture, weary of changing how problems get solved. The target client's pain points, i.e. the problems or potential problems they face, have to be strong enough to justify using your products or services. The current way of doing things needs to be enhanced or disrupted. You have to be cheaper, and if not, you need to prove that the value added by using your technology will justify the expense. For tech companies, conquering new markets takes time, perseverance, and money. Building an AI company can add further complexity. For your machine learning algorithms to work, you need data. Often this data does not exist or is difficult to access. You know, you're working with a, with a probability that you're gonna fail and that probability is probably pretty high. You know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to find some sort of innovative way to dramatically, you know, change the needle in terms of the way uh, this industry does stuff. So there's that technical risk, which, you know, is, is, is if, it, if, you, if it doesn't work, then you don't have a business. On this episode of Market Hunt, we chat with Handel Kim, co-founder of Variational AI. His company uses generative AI to help develop new drugs. Variational AI wants to reduce the time it takes to produce drugs and increase the probability of their success. In this episode, we're going to be covering a lot of concepts that a non-AI expert might not comprehend. You'll find links to definitions for some of these concepts on our episode show page and in the episode transcript. Have a look at these as you dive into this program. Let's listen into our conversation. Handel, welcome to Market Hunt. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Please introduce yourself and explain the difference between a core AI company and an application AI company, and where does variational fit into that paradigm? We are a generative AI for drug discovery startup based in Vancouver, and we were founded in October of 2019. And uh, we've been working really hard on trying to apply AI to discover new drugs faster that have a higher probability of getting approved. And we use this technology across multiple targets in many disease areas. So we're an applied AI company in the sense that we use AI to solve a problem. So it's AI for X. So if you're an AI for FinTech, you're an applied AI company. If you're AI for you know, digital marketing, you know, you're an a applied AI company, as opposed to maybe a core AI company where what you do is you develop algorithms um, and then you try and find a market and an application or product for that uh, algorithm. So there are some multi-industry core AI companies, uh, Element AI being kind of uh, the most famous of them. And they have a, 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 their challenges to find uh, commercial applications that can pay them enough money um, to grow and, and, and become a, an ongoing business. Whereas in an applied AI company, we do fundamental research in AI, but it's constrained to one specific uh, domain or activity. There's an important distinction between core and application AI companies. Core AI companies work more as consultants, adjusting their algorithms to suit whichever client solicits their services. Application AI companies work on one algorithm to solve one specific problem. So they need to be sure they are working on the right problems, or else all of their work will be for nothing. Variational AI is an applied AI company working on a product for a specific market, drug discovery. The startup applied for funding via Canada's Digital Supercluster, a government-sponsored program to support the innovation economy. Bill Tam, 
the Supercluster's co-founder and COO, describes the opportunity for application AI companies and their investment into variational AI's technology. I think the big thing in the uh, variational case, and I think this is the case for AI investments in Canada broadly, is that, you know, variational has taken a very deliberate attempt to actually make products and use cases in the uh, life sciences and the pharmaceutical space. In that regard, um, I, my hope is that it will set uh, them apart from many of the other sort of uh, AI initiatives in the in the country. Oftentimes what we see is AI in and of itself has been sort of an undertaking that is about applying know-how and more of a consultancy arrangement than it is about end product. And so, you know, with the likes of variational, hopefully we can establish a bit of a, a framework or at least a, um, a blueprint for how companies can take an AI notion and actually productize things as opposed to just being a expertise provider in the equation. The digital supercluster is funding variational AI to work with other partners to further develop and perfect their algorithms, allowing them to generate new molecules which could be attached to drug targets. For more on drug targets, check out the episode show links. I asked Handel to provide us with a bit more background on how drugs were traditionally developed and what opportunity he saw for variational AI to enter the drug development market. Yeah, so, um, you know, in the area of therapeutics, I mean, these are, these are drugs that you would, uh, you know, be pres prescribed once you have a condition as opposed to vaccines. And then within sort of the area of therapeutics, uh, there's, you know, what we might call biologics. And these are larger molecules, proteins, for example. You know, companies like uh, Abcellar or Zymorts in Canada do a great job, um, you know, addressing that market. We are in the area of small molecules, and so we work in chemistry. So what we do is we find new chemicals uh, in, the, uh, in the vast, you know, chemical space in order to uh, drug certain targets uh, that are related to certain diseases. And these targets are usually proteins. And what is different about what you're doing? Because I imagine that there's other companies that are doing this molecular work. What's the difference between what Variational is doing and what other, I guess you can call them, traditional drug development companies are doing? Yeah, so in, in general, uh, you know, you have an idea, uh, you start with a target, right? And a target might be, like I said, a protein or an enzyme or, or something. And you have some kind of insight or there's research that states that this target is related to a disease. So there's a mechanism of action that creates diabetes, for example, or, or HIV. And so the idea then is to take that uh, target, that protein, and then try and find a, a small molecule, a chemical uh, structure a molecular structure that will actually fit. And it's like a three-dimensional sort of Tetris game where you're trying to put a, a little uh, key inside this big amorphous floppy sort of structure. And it's a very hard problem. Um, and, and really what happens is that traditional drug discovery, um, you know, you start with what we might call experimental data. So you would actually, you have a target and then you start with, um, you, you actually screen and, and you take some chemical compounds and you actually physically stick it inside a bunch of wells, uh, and then you see if those uh, compounds uh, have any activity if, uh, against the target. And if they do, then you're like, yay, this is what we call a lead. And then you work on that lead, and then you try and optimize it. You try and make it bind better with that target. And also you try to eliminate um, certain things that you know, happen in drugs. Uh, for example, you don't want off-target effects. You don't want your drug 
uh, binding to a different area and then causing a side effect that might be worse than the condition you're trying to address. Um, or you're also trying to ensure that it has the right pharmacokinetic properties, that it is absorbed by the body, it's distributed by the body, it's metabolized, and it's excreted. You don't want that drug building up in the liver and then causing damage down the line. And then obviously you also want, you want it not to be toxic and kill you. Um, and most, you know, also finally, uh, you also want it to be a molecule that you can actually synthesize and manufacture. So these are all various properties. And then that you want it to be potent. You don't want it to be, to have a high, too high of a dosage. You want it to be orally bioavailable. All of these properties that you're trying to, trying to develop within uh, a candidate molecule, it's a very, very hard optimization problem. Imagine, you know, you've got a small blanket and you're trying to cover all of these points and you pull it over here and it exposes your foot and you pull, pull it up and it exposes your arm. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to ensure that the drug meets all of these properties. Um, and then once it's done, then you would go into clinical trials. It's a very hard problem. And the fact is that within the, within the field of drug discovery, costs are increasing uh, tremendously every year. On, uh, on out-of-pocket costs, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. You're talking you know, 10 to 12 years. Um, and a lot of the drugs that go into clinical trials don't end up going out. Maybe only one out of eight actually make it out. But some are higher, some are lower, depending. Uh, cancer is very, very hard. Uh, you know, other drugs, uh, other areas are, are a lot easier. In any case, what happens is you're undertaking a massive risk and a massive technical investment in order to try and develop this one drug. And so it's very, very hard. The failure rate is very high. Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to take that early stage drug development, uh, early stage drug discovery. We start with the target. Once we know what the target is and we have data around the target, then what we do is we use, we use our generative AI to generate novel molecules that uh, haven't been seen before, and then we optimize them uh, across multiple properties simultaneously, and that's where we get the time saving. So what we try and do is we're trying to reduce uh, early stage drug discovery or maybe preclinical, up to preclinical, and turn it from years, and eventually, if we do it right, we, we wanna try and uh, reduce that to months. And that in turn will help reduce the the, the time required to develop drugs. Now, obviously, this is a holy grail, and um, you know we're 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 uh, using an incremental approach to do this. But we've got some very promising results early on. So, if we're able to do that, not only can we shorten the preclinical, but the idea and the, and the hope is that we can also increase the probability of success, such that by the time uh, you know you take a drug into clinical trials, which is where a lot of that expense goes, um, that you have higher confidence that the molecule will actually um, you know, pass the trials and, and be approved. So, we, yeah, the, the, the main problem that we address with our AI is that we are a generative AI. So in that sense, if you look at the way drugs are discovered today, um, you know, the, the, the space, we call it chemical space, and it's a concept of um, out of all the molecules that exist in the universe, there are certain drugs that are drug-like, right? And they follow certain heuristics, such as Lipinski's Rule of Five or various, you know, drug uh, likeness types of, of heuristics. And, you know, conservatively, we're looking at a space of 10 to the 60 molecules. And that's just a mind-bogglingly large number. And drug discovery today uses sort of a brute force approach where I might screen 100,000 molecules or compounds against a target um, experimentally, or maybe up to a million, but that's extraordinarily expensive and takes a really long time. And then the other way of doing it is computationally using what we call virtual screening. 
So you can use high throughput virtual screening where you can take millions, hundreds of millions, even over a billion molecules and screen those computationally or in silico as we call it against the target. Now, a billion molecules is, is a very large number. It's far, far bigger than anything we could do in the lab. But at the same time, you know, 10 to the ninth is a very, very, it's effectively 0% of the chemical space. So what we do is we use, instead of a brute force method and trying to increase the number of molecules that we can screen virtually from a billion to a trillion to a quadrillion, you know, a million order speed up is still effectively 0% of chemical space. What we do is we take a different approach. And our generative model essentially will take uh, data that we have, uh, both experimental data as well as computational data, and it will train the algorithm as inputs. The algorithm, because it's generative, will then learn sort of the, 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 the distribution of the molecules and will learn kind of what makes the molecule uh, active against the target, what doesn't make it active against the target. And then we use some machine learning magic um, in our variational autoencoder, ergo the name variational. Um, and then what the, the algorithm that then does is it generates molecules that were not in the training set, but should be from the same distribution. And these molecules then are optimized for the properties of interest, such that when we come out, we generate these molecules um, that are uniform within the space of properties that you're looking for, but are going to be diverse with respect to, to the structures. So it's a very different way of looking at it. And it's not a brute force method. Um, it is, a, a, we generate these molecules that, that, that don't exist or we're not in the, the training set. And, and that's our difference. And we're not the only ones doing it, but uh, this is the province of, you know, of a handful of, of, of machine learning companies that are working in the space of drug discovery. How are you defining your market then if you are, you need data, first of all, mm -hmm. to be yeah. able to do this business model. And so maybe you can describe a little bit of who are your stakeholders and how you're interfacing with each. Sure. And, and um, right now we're in a stage because we're a young company where we're, we're validating the algorithm. So what we need is that we need to identify targets of interest. And so a target is something that, you know, we're, for us, we need data against that target. So we work with biopharma partners, pharma partners that have, you know, concepts of, uh, that have uh, targets, they have data that they've screened against the target. And there's um, a relatively high confidence, whether it's an established target or a validated target, that this target actually means something. You don't want to go through all of this trouble and, and, and find a really awesome molecule that uh, interacts with the with the target only to find that the target didn't have any re relation to the disease right so you want to try and de-risk you know these are not the droids you're looking for right so you spend all this time and like oh well that didn't work out the way we wanted to so we go to partners who know more than us because we are a small machine learning startup and then secondly but also importantly you want to make sure that you're you're targeting something that has commercial value right so that it is not something that um you're not going to be able to make money out of. It's not a, a pressing disease area, right? And you want to be able to make sure that um, that you choose uh, the right target along these axes as well as other considerations. So for us, the, we de-risk this by going to partners that have uh, established programs or have more information or, or better knowledge than us. We also need to work with medicinal chemists. And these are chemists who are drug hunters who, who have this intuition. And we work hand in glove with our partners um, and we know that our, our AI is, needs the human in the loop uh, and the expert knowledge in order to make it better. You know, we're not, we're not going to replace, you know, jobs in medicinal chemistry anytime soon. Uh, there's definitely an ongoing role uh, for medicinal chemistry uh, in tandem with uh, machine learning. So 
we, we de-risk our uh, activities in order to validate. And where we are right now is we're in the stage of validation. We currently have three programs where we've got defined targets with great partners, um, such as Admari Bio uh, Innovations, as well as the University of BC and others, where we have uh, a concept of a target. Uh, we have a target identified, we have data, and we've got the expertise to help us ensure that we don't end up generating molecules with this AI that are obvious or, or don't work. So we need to be able to work with these uh, partners. Once we validate that the molecules that uh, we generate that were trained on the data against the target um, are then experimentally validated, you know, biochemically and in cell lines, then all of a sudden, you know, if we can say this molecule will have this kind of, you know, uh, you know, efficacy, and then we synthesize or, or order these molecules and test them, and yes, in fact, they do, then I think we've, uh, we've unlocked a very, very big achievement. Um, and at that stage, you know, once we've uh, done that enough times, then the idea is for us to, to, to raise a lot of money and then go and become a, a drug company uh, that is powered by an AI platform. And that's no different than many uh, drug companies today, but uh, a lot of drug companies in biotech don't necessarily use AI, but they'll use other sort of platforms. Um, and the ability to use a platform in order to more rapidly generate, um, you know, uh, candidates uh, and uh, file your INDs and, and build your pipeline is really, really uh, what we're trying to do. So drug companies, once you have that, let's say Ceteris Paribus, everything is going well, and you have your technology that is validated through the different tests that you're doing with Admare, UBC, et cetera. Once you hit that stage, um, you're saying that you want to develop the drugs then in-house at Variational AI and then transform yourself into a drug development company. Why choose to do that over licensing your technology to bigger companies who are already in that stage with the clinical trials and everything that goes out? Uh, why make that choice and why make that choice right now? Why do you feel like you have to make that choice right now? Well, so, you know, this is a really good question and it's actually, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about this. So just, just to be clear, we're not saying that we're, we're going to have, you know, go and sponsor our own clinical trials and run these, you know, even if we're able to validate the technology. The idea would be for us to create an asset and an asset is, you know, an optimized uh, lead that uh, has gone through animal, you know, uh, models and, and it is something that we can then license to larger companies who would then take that uh, that compound and then take it through clinical trials. Okay. So we're not going to be, you know, launching. <laughs> we don't have that. We don't have that kind of budget and we don't have that expertise either. So, you know, what we're doing is the, once we validate is, is the goal is to, is to generate assets. And then these assets will then be, you know, licensed. And, and that's a very um, common model with, with biopharma uh, today is even if you're a publicly listed company, um, you know, you may not choose to, to take your own, you know, uh, compound into into the clinic, um, and that all depends on the kinds of deals that you can strike with, with with partners. So that is likely what we're going to do, at least in the midterm. Um, where, in terms of why we want to focus on generating assets instead of being, let's say, a platform company and and providing the service to others, is is the simple reason is because we talk to a lot of uh, investors and people in the ecosystem, and I come from the tech world, and and I've had a you know, a fairly long career in software, cloud, mobile, and in, in tech, in digital technology or ICT, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to build a platform. And then the platform will, will have network effects and will, 
will generate tremendous value. And, and that's really what you want. Um, but, you know, in the drug discovery world, as we spoke to people and they said, let me get this straight. You're saying that if you can do this, that you'll be able to generate drugs faster than the way they're developed today. And you can do this on an economical basis. Well, why the heck won't you, why the heck would you like give that up and, and not develop your own drugs? And after, you know, the 10th person told us that, you know, we kind of thought like, hmm, maybe, maybe we should listen to what people say in the industry. So it was really, um, you know, the, 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 the challenge for us is that, you know, we're all machine learning people and, and there are certain benefits for that. I mean, we can bring in the, you know, the state of the art machine learning and, and we have that. I mean, you know, in terms of benchmark results in the machine learning community and then also um, other benchmarks uh, results, we're state of the art. We outperform, you know, every other lab that has publicly released its, its, uh, their results. But at the same time, um, you know, we're, we're new to this world. We're immigrants to, you know, drug discovery. Um, and as a result, we, we, you know, a lot of this time is, is spent trying to understand how the industry works and, and align it properly. I mean, I don't want to spit in the wind, right? And the fact is that fundamentally, if our value proposition is sound, then, uh, then, then we can really, really make a meal of it. So, you know, we just, we just talk to a lot of people and we're told and we're taking that advice. Well, and wisely so, because uh, so many ideas just get lost uh, sort of on the uh, on the diving board uh, before you jump into the ocean. And once you're in the ocean, it's very hard to get out. You've burnt your runway, so to speak, for something that's not necessarily going to, to have legs. And so you've done two major decisions. Number one, finding the right partners to work with to acquire the data. And number two, conceptualizing your company so that you understand the value before you've made even a commercial sale or maybe you've even had a, a letter of interest from one of these companies that eventually you're going to be partnering with and you're machine learning guys as you're saying but instead of going to bed and wishing oh man I wish I had done chemistry when I was younger and I should have done that extra degree and why didn't I listen to my parents you just go ahead and find uh, the medicinal <laughs> chemists and you find the right people who can do that super specialized work of validating that yes your molecules are actually going going in the right direction. And yes, they have that credibility from using those people to help enhance your product offering. And you've listened to what folks have said when you've gone and asked them money and you've uh, you've applied that. So I think a lot of people, personally, humbly speaking here, uh, will be interested in, 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 in that story because sewing a pivot before you even take a product out into a commercial market, as you say, is nothing new in the fail-fast world of tech. But in pharma, you're going into a different zoo over here and the animals are different and the expectations are different and the times to market are much more different. So you're really embracing a whole new culture from a different sector that you're going into. Can you give us an idea, Handel, how uh, long ago was it that AI companies started approaching pharma companies? Yeah, I guess it depends on how you define AI, but you know, I would say that you start from sort of deep learning and you know, maybe about 2011, 2012 is when sort of you see this deep learning uh, explosion. And that was all brought about by uh, rapid um, you know, uh, results um, in 2011, you know, um, ImageNet and AlexNet and really the ability for, you know, research out of Hinton's lab, uh, you know, at the University of Toronto and, and Krzyzewski's work there showing that, wow, you know, this new deep learning thing actually is get, getting much better results against the standard benchmark. 
Uh, and that was sort of the ImageNet moment. And all of a sudden you see like, wow, there's this thing actually works. And you see rapid, rapid innovation. And then pretty shortly after that, I, you know, I'd say that uh, Atomwise was, was probably one of the, 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 the pioneers of applying uh, you know, a deep learning approach to, to this field. And I believe that was like 2012, 2013. Um, and then you see sort of like at that stage, uh, the early sort of AI for drug discovery companies starting to get funded on a venture basis. You know, companies like Recursion, Atomwise, uh, Benevolent AI, et cetera. And over the course of a few years, these companies have been able to uh, attract a lot of investment and strike deals with pharma. And inside pharma itself, you see certain uh, companies investing quite heavily uh, in machine learning and AI to see if the thing actually works. Of course, you know, it's impossible for them to fund all of this innovation, so they, so they do it through the form of partnerships. But I'd say that you know we start we we hit sort of like a frenzy in about 2018, um, 2019, where you see a lot of deals happening and you see a couple of these uh, first generation AI uh, drug discovery companies, you know, generate uh, you know candidates that go into into the clinic and go into clinical trials. We have not yet seen uh, an approved drug that was you know discovered by AI, um, and you know just by dint of the way that uh, drug development works. That's going to take a little bit of time, um, but we see, you know, a growing pipeline. Then, what I would say is that that was sort of the first AI for drug discovery. And there's the other thing is there are a lot of AI companies that are solving different problems within sort of the drug discovery or drug development world. You know, you have companies that are at, at generating targets, starting from that, uh, you know, base. Companies like Eat Genomics, based out of Toronto, who are doing great things. You know, benevolent AI is, is working that area. And then you have AI companies that are working on drug repurposing, right? Which is looking at approved drugs and seeing if they're, uh, uh, you know, efficacious against different indications or different, different endpoints. And you have companies like Recursion, you have companies that are doing that. And then you have, uh, you know, other companies that are trying to basically use AI to vastly accelerate sort of this fragment-based method uh, of structure-based search. Um, you know, and generate novelty within these scaffolds, so you can you can you can search the chemical space more efficiently. Still a brute force method, but they're 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 generating a lot more. Um, you know, companies in, in that area are, are are like I would probably put Atomwise in that category, probably Cyclica, and then over in the in 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 the generative world, which is kind of the new the new thing. You know, I put us companies like Insilico, uh, Invivo out of uh, Montreal. So there's a very robust sort of ecosystem, and we're all trying to solve, we're all so trying to solve similar problems, but in different ways, right? And 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 that's good. We've got this great diversity, and Canada does you know quite well in that regard, and and you know we're just proud to be part of the ecosystem. Well, I mean, definitely, you really are solving a major pain point in the industry, which is the risk involved in putting assets towards drug discovery. Maybe, Handel, you can describe a little bit about the origination of Variational and what drove you to found this company. Well, so, you know, there are five co-founders and we all used to work together and we, you know, developed an algorithm that was uh, extraordinarily, you know, good at predicting molecular property and optimizing molecular property. And it was based on that strength that we decided to start the company. So I'm the only non-research uh, person. So that means I do everything that's not related to, you know, uh, to research. And I, and I think it's a good relationship in the sense that we're lean and we're very focused. You know, we, we all decided when we started this company that, to be honest, we, we actually were thinking of, of, of applying the AI 
to molecular discovery in fields outside of pharma. Mm -hmm. Because the idea was that, well, pharma is so crowded. There's so many awesome companies who've raised so much money and and it's an ecosystem that's very different. And, and I, I, I had tremendous respect for, um, you know, biopharma. And I knew that I didn't really know anything <laughs> in biopharma. And, you know, you kind of take a, a very sort of B-school approach and go like, oh, you know, there's a lot of competition. They're well-funded. And, you know, here we are, Johnny come lately. We don't have domain expertise. It's a it's sort of a, a Red Sea sort of market. Why don't we go blue ocean? So we looked at, you know, materials. We looked at, you know, nanoparticles. We looked at electronic, um, you know, mole molecules used in electronics. We looked at scents and flavorings. And these are all very large markets. We looked at polymers. We looked at materials. And, and there's a tremendous amount of innovation happening there. We looked at, you know, enabling synthetic biology. All of these things are all based on molecules. And a molecule is a molecule, uh, except, you know, they're, they're, they're very different. But we thought that we could apply this uh, this technology to areas outside of pharma, mm -hmm. and and we actually spent um, you know quite a quite a quite a bit of time you know talking to large chemical companies, material companies, and 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 investors. And, and one of the things that we found fairly quickly was that they didn't have enough data to train our models, right? To train our algorithm, right? And it didn't look like they were going to have data for a while, and that's because. You know, chemistry and materials um, are where maybe pharma was maybe 15, 20 years ago in the sense that there wasn't a digitalization of the data. It's still very much bench driven, right? Which is why you see some really exciting innovations happening in sort of uh, autonomous labs and, and various other areas where, you know, the first goal is to, to generate that data, then you can do something with it. And so we figured, you know what, this will keep for a while. So let's go into pharma because let's wade into this crowded market um, and and um, and try and differentiate. And we're glad that we did because even though there was a crowded market, I mean it's a 1.3 trillion dollar market. I mean it's a very very massive market. You have hundreds of thousands of companies around the world all using you know biology, using various types of chemistry, using different types of methods to try and solve the same problem, which is increase the probability probability of success you know, of, of a therapeutic, right? Yeah. And so, so we thought, well, you know, we can bring this to the party and, and we're really glad we have. And, and, you know, the, the thing that that's been tremendously important to us is, is not as, as machine learning researchers, you know, the, the, the community tends to focus on academic sort of projects and data sets, uh, trying to publish a paper and, you know, in, in research world, you know, your data sets are, are, are big and they're beautiful, they're balanced and, you know, you can do really, really well. But in the real world, I mean, data <laughs> is not is definitely not of that nature. Um, and so you you undertake uh, you you face challenges that you wouldn't in an academic setting. And this last year, we've spent translating our research from machine learning into actual uh, programs on actual targets with actual data. And we've learned so much. And in doing so, and in talking and and working and cooperating with people who know more than us you know, in the world of chemistry, organic chemistry, medicinal chemistry, and biology, you know, we've made the algorithm that much better to the extent where, you know, and this is where the super cluster really comes in is, um, you know, when COVID uh, came around, you know, obviously there was a tremendous sort of reckoning and a, and a national teeth and what are we going to do? And, um, you know, the, the COVID call from the, the digital technology super cluster was tremendously, you know, opportune and ideal for us in the sense that because our, 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 you know, our approach is agnostic with respect to the target. We thought, well, heck, you know, <laughs> this is a this is a virus, right? It's an infectious disease, mm -hmm. um, and there's data that we can use to train on it. 
because the sad fact about COVID-19 is we, we, we faced SARS, you know, some 15 years ago, and it wasn't as serious of, of a pandemic as, as COVID-19 has been. But to a large extent, when you look at the virus, I mean, it's SARS-CoV, right? Or SARS Classic was what caused SARS, you know, 15 years ago, and then just up and disappeared. It petered out. And then at that moment, all the research stopped, right? People didn't want to fund it. Why would you fund research on a, on a virus that doesn't exist anymore? And it's unfortunate because had we continued and actually developed therapeutics and vaccines for SARS, there is a, a, a decent chance, more than more than you know, decent, that these therapies and, and vaccines might have been efficacious against COVID. Because when you look at the virus and the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is what causes COVID, they're extraordinarily similar. But what we were able to do is we were able to take that data because there was a lot of data in the public domain um, and supplemented with additional data. And we were able to train on SARS-CoV, SARS Classic, and then do some you know, transfer learning because of the, the fact is that the viruses are very, very uh, close to each other. 96%, I think, uh, similarly. And then with the target we chose is 3CL Pro. And that difference is even, is even smaller. I think it's just one amino acid difference in the binding pocket. And so we were able to avail ourselves of, of you know, data uh, and efforts you know, that, were, that were done 15 years ago to really kind of leapfrog. And so it was very ideal for us. And then to be able to have um, you know, the funding from the digital technology supercluster uh, to cover the costs of, of the research was, was invaluable and, um, and certainly extremely material uh, to our ability to continue making progress on the research and development side. And so we're really, really, you know, pleased that we were able to do that and, uh, and generate some results against it. And where we are right now is, you know, in partnership with, with uh, Dr. Artem Cherkasov at the Vancouver Prostate Center, which is part of uh, VGH uh, and UBC, is you know uh, we're able to use resources um, from the ecosystem in order to to, to generate um, you know some some awesome compounds that so far look quite promising, and we're in the stage where we're we've actually um, you know ordered some uh, samples and we're starting to test uh, in biochemical assays, and from that we iterate and we're making good progress there, and, and we're really excited about the potential. Then, you know, the question is, is obviously the digital technology supercluster is extremely interested in commercialization. Then, you know, how do we commercialize it? Well, you know, that's where Admare comes in. And Admare is providing services as, a, as part of the consortium, both on the medicinal chemistry side, but also on the commercialization side. And so we feel that as a small company, as, a, as, a, as an SME, as the government likes to call it, you know, we... Uh, we're able to partner with larger organizations that have both the network uh, ability, track record uh, to go out and commercialize any kind of asset that we might be able to generate. And uh, it, it's a win-win-win. So we're, we're very happy about that. When you're in deep tech or in a very, very difficult type of technology, you kind of go to where the deep expertise is. And in general, that's going to be a fairly rarefied pool of, of people. So you kind of need to know who you're going to be, you know, you're going to bring to the dance. And with the supercluster, you know, their, their whole thing is, look, we need to ensure that the consortium that you put together for a project to get funded is capable, you know, of doing the work uh, and then of commercializing it. And so we're able to bring in the partnerships and start making progress on it. You know, what we're trying to study here with Market Hunt is how ideas get commercialized. And it seems, as you're saying, with technologies that are developed for drugs that haven't even been conceptualized yet, 
you need to have some partnerships with different players who each have their own expertise. Uh, some of them provide the data, some of them provide the commercialization capabilities. Oftentimes, the startup will be the tech piece, which is sort of the inventor, if you will, using that algorithm. And how you're all playing together kind of in your sandbox, being enhanced by the supercluster, really gives a lot of hope, I think, and optimism for the potential of future collaborative entities to take a look at what you guys did and then try to apply that to their own paradigms and their own problems that they're that they're working to solve. So very insight, very exciting stuff and very interesting for you to share that journey with us. So what kind of challenges does Variational have? Are you feeling safe and secure in what you're doing right now? Because <laughs> it's kind of impressive to really pivot there and, and take on that challenge. I mean, so there, there, there are certain nightmares that you have that are sort of intrinsic to anyone trying to, you know, to all entrepreneurs, right? <laughs> and, you know, there's that bucket. And then there's the other bucket of, of working in in sort of these sort of moonshot, you know, deep technology worlds. And so I'll, I'll talk about the latter first, which is, you know, I don't think that if you're working in an area of deep technology, I mean, you're working with a, with a probability that you're going to fail. And that probability is probably pretty high, a lot higher than than um, you know, most companies are are comfortable in taking, because it's it's kind of binary in one sense. It's like it works or it doesn't, and there's a real risk of technical and scientific failure that you might come up with something that might work but is no better than than the status quo. In which case, it's your it's a failure. You know what you're trying to do is you're trying to find some sort of innovative way to dramatically you know change the needle in terms of the way uh, this industry does stuff. So right then and there, you know, it's it's really David and Goliath. And and the fact of the matter is, is, you know, we go, who are we to, to go in and talk to a pharma company that, you know, is 40 billion in sales and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and has been around for 100 years and say that, hey, we think we can do what you do, but better mm. and a lot faster. I mean, you you raise a lot of eyebrows. You know, the good thing about us is that we're in a space where this is, we're not the only ones. So, and I think there's a growing realization that there is some validity to machine learning being applied to this domain. So at least we're not the new, the, the first ones, you know, we're, we basically are, are, are part of a wave, which is, which is tremendous. And that completely de-risks us. But again, you have to look at the technology. You have to look at the teammates that you have. And and I'm I'm blessed by working, you know, working with people who are you know top notch. And you know, at the end of the day, it's about how good the team is in executing. Um, you know, how rapidly we can make progress, how we can how we can uh, adjust and, and 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 change and iterate and ensure that that you know we we meet our goals. So there's that technical risk, which you know is 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 if it if you if it doesn't work, then you don't have a business. Luckily, we, we start from a, a position where academically and research-wise, we knew what we were doing and we had great results. Then it's a translation issue, and that is you know, a completely different set of challenges. But we're at a stage now where, where we think we're getting close to a stage where we can validate and show data that shows that, hey, we can actually do this. And, and once we do this, we think that's a, a very large uh, value-generating uh, milestone. So there's that, which is like, is it going to work? And, you know, we, we work on that every day and, and I've got some of the best people, you know, working on that in within the company. So then the then there's commercial risk in terms of how do we interface with customers in the market. Right. And we don't even think about competitors that much at this stage because it's such a large market. Right. There's going to be space for different uh, AI for drug discovery companies to, to emerge. It's not a winner take all situation. 
at least not yet. There's no, it's not like Google can kind of move in and then take the entire market. Yeah. Not yet, right? <laughs> so, so you have these sort of fears and, and, and concerns and challenges. And then it's about, you know, then, you know, the rest of the stuff is being an entrepreneur. And, and I'm sure, you know, you speak to a lot of entrepreneurs on, on your podcast here. And, and the fact is that, you know, you, you look at someone starting a company and, and I read this article, it was really good about sort of the, the psychological toll of, of starting companies. And you look at, wow, you know, look at this entrepreneur. And it's like looking at someone riding a lion and you go like, wow, that, that, that person's really brave. Meanwhile, the person riding the lion is like, how the hell did I get on this lion? And how do I get off without being eaten by the lion, right? <laughs> so, that's so, brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and, and, and really, it's kind of like you just do it. You don't really think, you know, you, you can't analyze it. You know, you, you, just, you just have to execute them. And that sort of um, reckless fearlessness and that audacity, you know, tempered by, you know, capability and IP and, 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 uh, and your teammates, you know, and the size of the market, that's really all you've got. You know, when you're when you're trying to uh, enforce your reality on a market that is a, a massive market. So these are some pretty, pretty fundamental sort of nightmares that you have. I gave the analogy uh, back in a previous podcast. I was comparing it to a downhill skier who, you know, knows what time they have to get at the finish line to become the winner of that race. And yeah. they're just trying to visualize their run as they're at the top of the mountain, right at the gates, and they're getting ready to go. And they're seeing every single turn ahead of time, and they're seeing how they're going to perform that turn. And it seems like entrepreneurs have to operate in this sort of spatial ether where they have to be present, they have to be, you know, on top of every single day and kind of win the day, so to speak. But they also have to look in their subconscious at the deeper run that they're making and need to be able to ensure that they're at the right speed, they're at the right funding, they're at the right sort of market positioning to make that turn to be able to finish the race. So it's a real balancing act, which requires a bit of insanity, frankly. But I mean, some people are into that stuff. We've interviewed quite a few of them, so it's it's it, there is there are people that are out there that are uh, crazy enough to try this stuff, and 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 you seem to be one of them, which is which is a great trait to have. So kudos on that. How do you measure your success at this stage? I mean, at this stage right now, I just want to make sure there's enough money in the bank to pay everyone and cover costs for long enough for the team to be able to execute on the technical goals, and, and that is simply put the most brutal metric that we have right now. If we're able to hit our technical goals, then we go out and raise another, you know, we raise more money, um, we do more deals, and then we further validate. Um, and this is, you know, where we are right now, it's not a uh, like we flip the switch and then all of a sudden we become all powerful, you know, molecular space, you know, searchers. And, I mean, it, it, it's it's a journey. And so, you know, we have this phase now where we're, we're validating the the algorithm and we're making excellent progress against it. And we, we hope to have some some great results in the next, you know, few months. To, to, to validate this. Um, and then after that, then we, we, we raise more money so we can hire more people um, and get the resources we need. It, 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 it would be, it would, it's shocking to know how much GPU resources we use in, in, in machine learning. Uh, and, and, and there's a reason why NVIDIA's stock is so high is because, I mean, we, we basically take money and we give it to them so that we can actually, you know, do the training of our, of our, of our algorithm and our model. So again, to, to, to have enough runway enough time and enough resources for, for the team uh, to hit their technical goals. After that, then we raise more money and then we rinse and repeat, except this time the technical goals 
get more interlaced with business goals. Right now we have three shots on goal. And, and that's a really, really awesome place to be at this stage right now where we are. We've got, you know, state of the art results. Um, and we just now need to, to, to hit that next, um, you know, value generating milestone. After that, then we move to, to the next phase of growth, which is we start looking at different programs. We start interfacing with larger partners. We already have some commercial deals. And so, you know, that's, that's all very good. And the validation is there. The goal itself is extraordinarily ambitious. Uh, and difficult to achieve, and you know we have to take it in increments. And at each increment that we that we hit, each milestone unlocks more value. We can generate you know better results and and get the 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 capital and the resources and the support that we need in order to make it to the next level. It, it, the trajectory is very similar to to other companies that you've seen, like you know Abseller is a great story here in Vancouver. They're worth a massive amount of money now. They're now one of the maybe the, the highest capitalized by market cap, um, you know, life sciences company in, in or Canadian life sciences company, which is awesome. Yeah. That took them a while. Um, and, you know, they made enormously rapid progress during COVID. Um, and, but even before then, the, the groundwork was laid and they've raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from, from great investors. We're, we're not there yet. One recurring obstacle AI companies face is accessing reliable data to fuel their machines. I asked Handel about the importance of data for variational AI. What would data accessibility look like for variational in an ideal world? So data, of course, is it's the fuel. Without it, we, we really can't do anything. I mean, machine learning is inherently data-driven. So the, uh, where we are, it's slightly different. So if I'm sort of a healthcare uh, AI company, um, or, you know, I'm trying to track sort of the, the outburst of a, of a pandemic, you know, you want to rely on, on, on data in the health world. And, and, you know, life sciences, health, you know, pharma, they're generically kind of all, you know, lumped together, but they're very different. We don't have to deal with things like HIMSS or privacy issues relating to patient data. The data that we use to train our, our, our AI is, is, is data about chemicals and molecules. And so there's a tremendous amount of data that's out there in open source repositories, such as, you know, like uh, Zinc or PubChem, Campbell, et cetera, et cetera. And these are curated by some wonderful, you know, organizations that make this available to the research community. And this is not data about people. Therefore, it's not really subject to the same privacy or ethics review that, that, that you would need, right? As opposed to if I want to train a model on predicting, you know, breast cancer, then I'm going to need a lot of data about breast cancer, you know, you know, images, and and that comes from actual people, and then you have to deal with that issue. So that is not an issue for us. The issue, though, is that in in many cases, the the companies themselves or you know the industry itself has not generated enough data for machine learning use, and and that is that is uh, you know a, a real sort of limiting factor. In in the, in the ideal world, you know we. You know, there, there, we we generate enough resources such that we can generate the data ourselves and and uh, against targets that we decide. It's an expensive proposition, but it's something that makes uh, you know our lives a lot easier. Or we find some method where we can access the data uh, if it exists. But in many cases, you know, there there's insufficient data against targets and 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 screening data that that we would want to use, and so we would want to supplement that. But at the same time, there's a lot of data that's already out there. So, you know, data for us is, is a function of, of resource. So we don't have the resources right now to go out and, and, and effectively, you know, pull all the data that's available publicly, but also we can't generate enough ourselves because, you know, we don't, 
we don't have the time or the resources to do that. So that's why we look at partnerships at this stage. Um, but in an ideal world, you know, we choose a target and there's data there and, or we generate data against it and then we train our, 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 our algorithm. Um, we run our own, you know, experimental campaigns or we, we hire a CRO or a service provider to do that. Uh, and then we, and then we, we generate enough data such that uh, we're able to apply our, our algorithm. One thing I would say though, is, is because we're, we're, we operate in a world of sparse data, our algorithm is extraordinarily good at working with small amounts of data. Mm-hmm. And that's also another benefit of the generative approach versus let's say, you know, a more discriminative approach that a lot of other AI drug discovery companies are using. Tremendously interesting stuff. We have an academic-based audience. They love to look at companies such as yours and study them and study their evolution and study also, you know, sort of the ideation of what the entrepreneur is going through. You've given us some tremendous data to work with. What kind of questions would you like students to be working on if they are looking at variational AI? What kind of questions would you like to be asking them and, and, and get these students working on? When we start looking at various targets, there's a whole business element to the, the biopharma industry that, you know, we, we haven't touched really that much. And it's, you know, how commercially valuable is a target? What is sort of the landscape? And what's the portfolio of biopharmas working in this area? And then really, to a large extent, is we want to be able to start programs that are targeted towards something of commercial value. But also, you know, if we're up against this massive juggernaut of a you know, of, of, of a drug that's generating $8 billion a year for, for a pharma and, you know, it's, it's well-serviced, then maybe, you know, we, we pick a smaller target first, right? Mm-hmm. Or if, but if something is maybe going off patent or, or what have you, maybe that's a, a good sort of time to go for a best-in-class type of, um, you know, approach. But really, you know, at the end of the day, our, our business model is, is it's, it's malleable. I mean, you know, within our company, we, we subscribe to the, you know, opinions strongly expressed, weekly held, right? In the face of better data and better information, you know, we're the first ones to go, oh, okay, we were pretty stupid about that. What the heck were we thinking? Let's change. And and you need that agility uh, and that mental agility to, to be able to ensure that you don't, you know, your skiing analogy is like, I would say that you're skiing blind and you just got to use the force and, and you want to make sure that you go left instead of right but you might hit a tree so you need to be able to be like if oh I, I think there's a tree in front of me i better switch left right instead of like sticking true to your to your misguided principles and then smacking into a tree and dying so where we would need the help is is in ensuring that that you know uh, areas that we're going after disease areas they're underserved because our approach is is largely agnostic to the disease area we want to find areas that we can actually uh, you know, bring an asset to market because then that also increases the value of that, of that asset. Right? If there's no drug, for for example, Alzheimer's, there's no approved drug for that, and and you know a lot of people have lost you know tens of billions of dollars of market value trying to bring drugs to market. Biogen lost you know 16 billion dollars worth of market cap because you know they missed an endpoint on their phase three. It was like a third of their market cap wiped out because this one drug yeah. didn't make it. Yeah. So we don't want to be in that situation, or we want to be savvy about it. Um, and, and look at, you know, a disease area that, you know, we don't want to go on a kamikaze mission. As, as awesome as we think our, our AI is, we want to make sure that we go after viable targets that have good commercial payback and, uh, you know, a, a higher than, than, than random chance of success. So that's something, you know, the analysis 
um, would be required in you know sort of looking at portfolios uh, and and what where other companies are, are active and not active and, and having that understanding to inform our decision because at some point you know after we validate we're going to start looking at, at our own targets so that's where we would need help. In this episode, we took a deep dive into the intricacies of drug development using artificial intelligence. We understood how market forces will continue to shape the development of drugs. These same forces would dictate how applied AI pharma hybrids evolve. The digital supercluster's investment in variational AI is the perfect example of this. For the technology to thrive, it will need to keep crossing that bridge between fundamental research and solving problems in the business world. Partnerships will be key to make this happen. More work needs to be done to keep fostering these networks. And we'll be here sharing the storyline with you as it continues to evolve. And now a final word from our sponsor, IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. If you are an education professional looking for course content, an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. Let's pick up where we left off for Photon Etc., a photonics company manufacturing measurement instruments for fundamental research and industrial applications. Beginning of 2004, uh, I borrowed a piece of lab in, in a university, uh, and they, they allowed me to have uh, just a small piece of the optical table. I made some, the first prototype. I was able to sell the first filter, and that gave me the, a bit of money to hire someone and, and rent a space at university, and we were the first in the, in the Joseph-Armand Bombardier incubator from Polytechnique and University of Montreal. That's Sebastian Blais-Wellet, founder of Photon Etc. Photon was able to leverage support from incubators to help him get his business off the ground. Because his technology was born out of an academic lab, it was a natural fit to pursue scientists as early adopters of his technology. You know, it's always the case with physicists and optical people because we, and a lot of scientists, you know, they develop a basic technology and then you ask yourself what you can do with that instead of starting from a problem and say, hey, what solution can I find for it? You know, it's very hard to have a new technology and analyze markets one after the other, saying, where can I fit? You don't know enough about these markets and people in these markets cannot understand your technology. Very difficult position. So at some point you just say, okay, and you go. And that's that's why we went to the people who were scientists. While allowing Photon Etc. to survive and even grow for a long period of time, working with scientists also presented serious challenges. The academic community is early adopters and they love new things. So they're great to develop a portfolio of products, develop new products. It's painful at some point because they always want something different because they want to go further than their last publication, they want to go further than their colleagues. And so they ask, they ask things that are not there. It's very intellectually interesting, but business-wise, you know, <clears throat> you like to, to repeat things. So, but it was a good way to start. You've been listening to segments of the Photon Etc. video case study, available on IE Knowledge Hub. Learn more about how Photon Etc. expanded their business into different markets, servicing multiple industries, and even spinning off new companies from their foundational technology. Watch their full case available for free at ie-knowledgehub.ca. 
Market Hunt is produced by Cartouche Media in collaboration with Serotone Studios in Montreal and Pop-Up Podcasting in Ottawa. Market Hunt is part of the IE Knowledge Hub Network. Funding for this program comes from the Social Sciences and Humanities Resource Council of Canada. Executive producers, Hamid Etamad, McGill University, Des Hotel Faculty of Management, and Hamid Motagi, Université de Québec en Outaouais. Associate producer, Jose Orlando Montez, Université du Québec à Montréal. Technical producers, Simon Petraki, Serotone Studio, and Lisa Carrito, Pop-Up Podcasting. Show consultant, J.P. Davidson. Artwork by Melissa Jandro. Voiceover, Katie Harrington. You can check out the IE Knowledge Hub case study at ie-knowledgehub.ca. For Market Hunt, I'm Thierry Harris. Thanks for listening.